please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Revelation, the second chapter, where we'll take as our reading the first seven verses, Revelation chapter 2. In terms of the outline of the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3 represent the central section of John's writing. Chapter 1 gives us a vision of the glorified Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the churches and present in their midst. Chapters 2 and 3 give us letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, representative of the problems of the churches, the praise that belongs to the churches, and Jesus' exhortation to them. And then finally, in chapter 4, John will begin what most people take to be the heart of the book of Revelation, the futuristic aspect of it, what can be expected in the future. Now, if you'd like to know more about chapters 4 and following, uh, I would invite you to come to our Bible studies because we have for well over a year now been studying the book of Revelation. We are presently in the 20th chapter, which is the very controversial chapter about the millennium. So if you want to know more about those things, come to Bible study. This morning, we look at the letters to the seven churches, and in particular, the letter to the church at Ephesus. I'll begin reading at Revelation 2, verse 1. Hear now God's word. And to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, he that walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlestands. I know thy works, and thy toil, and steadfastness, and that thou canst not bear evil men, and didst try them that call themselves apostles, and they are not, and didst find them false, and thou hast steadfastness, and didst bear for my name's sake, and hast not grown weary. But I have this against thee, that thou didst leave thy first love. Remember, therefore, whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I come to thee, and will move thy candlestand out of its place, except thou repent. But this thou hast that thou hatest the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh, to him will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And thus far the reading of God's word. The time is upon us when people contemplate the coming of another new year and thus reflect often on resolutions that they want to make. Uh, obviously, everyone can think of ways in which they hope the next year will be better than the last year. And accordingly, they resolve to do things. They resolve to lose weight. I'm always doing that. They resolve to patch up family squabbles, or resolve to make more money, or to get a new job. They resolve to write more letters. They resolve to give up smoking. They resolve to read more books to watch less television, to improve at a particular skill, to pursue some special hobby, to break a bad habit, and on and on and on. You know all about that. People make New Year's resolutions. And I want to suggest this morning, first of all, that this habit of making New Year's resolutions has behind it an implicitly Christian outlook, a Christian outlook on time, a Christian outlook on human life, a Christian outlook on history. Yes, making New Year's resolutions is something you wouldn't expect somebody that has a cyclical view of history to make. A cyclical view of history? What kind of philosophy are we talking about here? The idea that there is no real progress in history, that the course of human affairs it just goes round and round in the same patterns, making no new um, advances and achieving no specific goals that the ages of human life and civilization simply repeat themselves in endless successions. Well, if you had a cyclical view of history, there'd be no sense in making resolutions. We're just going to come back around to this spot again someday anyway. And my life doesn't serve any particular meaning. It's just part of the wheel of life, not the wheel of fortune here, although fortune and chance and fate may be seen as part of it, but the wheel of life understood as the meaningless wheel of life, where nothing ever serves a particular end or need, aims at any purpose. 
Or if you had another view of history, if you had the view of history of naturalism that says history is just chance and is going nowhere, that we're nothing more but chance byproducts of evolutionary slime from the slime back into the slime, then why on earth care about New Year's resolutions? We're not going anywhere. History doesn't have any meaning, and my life is just part of the third. Uh, it's just one more cog in an endless universal machine that doesn't have any rhyme or reason. Now, the idea of making New Year's resolutions has behind it Christian theology. I think in our culture, it particularly, should, uh, we should give thanks to the Puritans for the idea of New Year's resolutions because the Puritans kept daily journals of how they spent their money and spent their time very often. And what they would do periodically, whether it was at New Year's, as we call it or not, is they'd look at these journals and they'd say, now look at the percentage of my money that is going for sweets, or the percentage of my money that's going for entertainment, or the percentage of my time that's being given to some hobby that really isn't serving a constructive purpose. They would look at that, evaluate their life, and try to become more sanctified by reorienting themselves after that evaluation. You see, the Bible teaches that the course of time is not to be passed idly by the child of God. And we aren't just marking our days waiting for Jesus to return. You know, you can think it's a caricature. Nobody really holds this view. That's a Bible-believing, born-again Christian. But you can think of the Christian standing there just kind of tapping his foot, just waiting, you see, for Jesus to come. That isn't our view of time. We aren't just occupying space, you see, until our bodies finally give out and then we finally get to go to the glorious rest of the disembodied spirit existence in heaven. Now, we believe that in this life, here on earth, we are in a training ground for eternity and that what progress we make here will be beneficial in the future, not just for the rewards God will give us, but because we'll be better set to live with God and serve him for all eternity in the next life as well. We aren't to just pass time idly. Time is an opportunity for renewal, for constant growth in the Lord, for progressive sanctification, for extending the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and for preparing for that great and final day of reckoning where God will look at how we used our time and resources. Christians know that they are to redeem the time because the days are evil, as Paul says, that they are to press on toward the mark unto the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. They know that they're to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that they're always to abound in the work of the Lord. And Christians are mindful as well of the rebuke of Hebrews, the fifth chapter, where it says that by reason of time they are expected to have advanced an understanding and in their service to others in the church of Jesus Christ. Time is an opportunity for growth, progress, and therefore it's only appropriate that we should stop and take account of our lives periodically to see where are we going after all and to what are we giving our resources and just how are we progressing in this path that we've chosen. And being realistic, being Bible-believing, Calvinistic in our outlook, we know that we are sinners. We know that we fall short of the mark, that we're going to be imperfect in our intentions and imperfect in our performance. And thus, as we take stock of our lives, we stop and we try to make a break with past inadequacies. We try to realize new and better objectives in our lives. In short, we make resolutions, resolutions for the future. And because it reminds us that time is passing, New Year's Day is a convenient and I think an appropriate time to stop, take account, and make some resolutions. But now, if what I've said is true so far, it'll only take a moment's reflection to realize that those kinds of resolutions for the new year can be made by God's people not just individually, but also corporately. You see... As a congregation, we can take account of our collective life as God's people, looking for ways we can improve in the new year that's ahead of us. 
After all, the Bible offers imperatives and exhortations just as readily and just as directly to congregations as it does to individuals who are believers. And thus congregations need to stop periodically and to see how they, as a whole, are doing. It's appropriate to make congregational New Year's resolutions, and that's just what I would like to lead us to do today, to make a few congregational New Year's resolutions. This is nicely timed in God's providence, I believe, because next year, uh, next year, next week, we celebrate our five-year anniversary, as well as this being the Lord's Day before the beginning of a new year. And so, altogether, this seems to be a good time to stop, take stock, look at ourselves, and ask, what kind of resolutions can we make? Not just individually, but what resolutions can we as God's people as a whole collectively make for 1985? Now, that process may be a little bit painful, uh, just as it's a little bit painful, I guess, when we recognize our individual shortcomings, we make um, resolutions about them. I don't enjoy getting on the scale and saying, my, my, a few more pounds are going to have to go. But on the other hand, I know that it's a constructive thing to do that, and I'll be much happier if I do that. And so the slight pain may very well be worthwhile if it, if it leads us as a congregation to a more satisfying and a more God-glorifying life as his people. And so I want you to keep in mind two things as we proceed this morning. First, in first I want you to keep in mind that nothing that I'm suggesting today is any less relevant to any one of us than to any other. That's a very complicated sentence, but it's been forged very, very uh, well. Let me say that again. Nothing suggested today is any less relevant to any one of us than to any other. Oh, I could have come out and said, I'm not picking out individuals, you know, for criticism, and I'm not. What I'm trying to say is that those things that are going to be said this morning by way of encouraging a resolution as a congregation apply to all of us. And not, uh, not for us to sit there and say, oh, well, yes, it applies to me, but boy, it really applies to so-and-so. No, it doesn't apply any less relevantly to any of us than to any other. And secondly, everything that I have to say is truly constructively calculated to build us up as a congregation. So we come to Revelation chapter 2, which I've chosen as our, as our text for this morning, because I've told you already that the New Testament often addresses the spiritual life and the special problems of congregations as a whole. We see that in many places in the New Testament. In a noteworthy passage, where such congregational evaluations and exhortations can be found is Revelation chapters 2 and 3, which I explained in my introductory remarks, amounts to seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor. These letters all contain the same basic pattern. If we had time to read them, to study them this morning, you'd see that all the letters begin with a greeting to the angel of the church at, and then the location is given. Uh, the angel, undoubtedly the pastor of the church there, although other interpretations are available, I believe that it's being written to the messenger of God given to that particular church, who is now in turn to give this letter from Jesus Christ to the congregation, to the angel of the church. And then a special identification of Christ will be found as the sender of this letter. These things saith he who, and then a description of Jesus is given usually from the first chapter. Following that, commendation for the church will almost always be found. Words beginning, I know thy works. What comfort. Jesus says, I know. I see you. I understand. I'm aware of what you've accomplished. And then following this, a criticism of the church, but I have this against thee. Knowing as, uh, as well as you have done this is something that I cannot tolerate. I have this against thee. And then a warning is given to the church, and then an exhortation. Let he that hath an ear hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And then finally a promise. A promise for those who overcome these problems and triumph in the Lord. To him who overcometh I give. And then that pattern is followed in the seven letters as well. So, we have seven letters, all with the same basic format, and although all of the seven letters 
have valuable and important things to say to us here at Covenant Community Church. I think the first letter to Ephesus, as we find it in chapter 2, the first seven verses, that first letter to Ephesus can be viewed as particularly relevant to our own situation at Covenant Community Church. I wonder if you would agree with me. Let's take a look at it. First of all, what kind of congregation do we have? What do you think of when you think of Covenant Community Church? At what do we excel? There's no doubt that we do excel at many things. What are we known for? What's our reputation? What do we as a congregation see as important? To what do we give priority in our efforts? I want to suggest that when we answer such questions as those, we're going to see reflected in our own congregation what was found in the church at Ephesus when John penned the book of Revelation. Let's look at Revelation 2, 1 to 7, and I'll read it again for you. To the angel of the church, to the pastor at Ephesus, write these words. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, and he that walketh in the midst of the golden the seven golden candlestands. The Lord of the church is speaking, Jesus Christ, the one who is present with the church to the end of the age. And he says, I know thy works, thy toil and steadfastness, that thou canst not bear evil men, and didst try them that call themselves apostles, and they are not, and didst find them false, and thou hast steadfastness, and did bear for my name's sake, and hast not grown weary. But I have this against thee, that thou didst leave thy first love. Remember, therefore, whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I come to thee, and will move thy candlestand out of its place, except thou repent. And this thou hast, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh, to him will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise, or the garden of God. The Ephesian congregation was commended by Christ for its toil and its steadfastness in not bearing with evil behavior or false teaching. Look at verse 2. I know thy works, thy toil, and thy steadfastness, that thou canst not bear evil men, and didst try them that call themselves apostles, and they are not, and didst find them false. And for the honor of Christ's name, the Ephesians bore the reproach of being disciples of Jesus Christ, of disciplining the congregation, and they didn't grow weary in their work. Verse 3, Thou hast steadfastness, and didst bear for my name's sake, and hast not grown weary. And this diligence for doctrinal and ethical purity was something which they had for the good something that Christ recognized in them with pride and with pleasure. Verse 6, he says, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You see, they thought Christ's thoughts after him. They imitated his attitude toward unorthodox living and unorthodox doctrine. And that's for the good. We mustn't forget that. In our day and age, when people minimize theology and minimize exactness when it comes to doctrinal truth and purity, Jesus rejoices in the church that does that. Jesus commends the church that will not bear with false teaching and with evil behavior. Jesus wants a disciplined church. And this is all in their favor. He says, this you have. He doesn't take this from them. He doesn't ridicule this. He doesn't minimize this. It is all very important. It's indispensable. But they needed to recognize that Christ deserved and that Christ desired much more from them than that. Truth and discipline were indispensable virtues, but not sufficient attributes for the congregation. For you see, if they were, God could have done very well by simply having computers programmed with the truth. And maybe little devices like you see at the airport. You know when you go to the airport, they have these metal detectors you walk through and they, they squawk when something, uh, you have too much metal on you and they worry that maybe you're a threat or something like that. You know, God, he's almighty, he's all wise. I think God probably could have something like that, a little detector that we could put over the door leading into our congregation 
And when somebody comes through with an impure attitude or some unconfessed sin, the thing would squawk. And we'd have to go out and get things worked out before we'd come through and it wouldn't squawk at us anymore. If God wanted only truth and discipline, computers and squawking devices would have sufficed. But you know that that isn't what he wants. Christ has this against the Ephesian congregation. For all of its doctrinal truth and all of its church discipline, the words are very short. Oh, but boy, they go to the heart. You've left your first love. They had abandoned the love that they had at first, despite their emphasis on sound teaching. They were still orthodox, they were still disciplined, and they were working hard in those areas but they had left their first love. And you know, that can be a very um, dreadful thing to have a congregation that's very much up on its theology, but very low in terms of its heartfelt enthusiasm and love for the Lord. The Ephesian congregation had lost the initial enthusiasm that it enjoyed, its devotedness, its thoughtfulness, its eagerness, its piety, and its joyfulness. Those qualities that were displayed at the outset of their Christian experience had now waned. They were, if you would like, headstrong and heart weak. They had learned much and had applied it uh, stringently, and that's good, but their hearts were now growing cold. They were no longer living as a congregation with the same kind of enthusiasm and joy and all the vibrant, warm, personal qualities that were seen at the time of their first life as Christians, at the time of their conversion, at the time of their entering the congregation. And I think very much of our own church in that regard, because here at Covenant Community, I think we place a commendable emphasis upon doctrinal insight and upon truth upon righteousness in personal and social realms. We strive for biblical orthodoxy. And I think we're willing to endure reproach for operating on principle. We have done so. We believe in discipline here. We have a message for the world. As our advertising slogan puts it, we have biblical answers for your life. Our doctrine is reformed. Our doctrine is covenantal. Our ethic is theonomic. It's strong. We understand personal as well as social and political and economic righteousness. Our church government is Presbyterian. We have so much going for us in these areas. But I wonder, do we love God? Do we love his people the way we did at the first? Is our devotion and our enthusiasm... And our heartfelt concern the same as when we came to the Lord? Is it the same as when we began to enjoy the fellowship of his people here in this place? Have we abandoned our first love? Our congregation is extraordinary in theological strength and knowledge. I think we have a more well-read and learned congregation than perhaps can be found anywhere in the United States. And I don't say that to butter you up. I think that's true. And yet, the session was reflecting on this the other day, for all of the extraordinary doctrinal insight and learning that we have, you know the problems that we have to experience here in our church are so completely ordinary. Our theological strength has not lifted us above the same problems that we read about in other churches and that I know about in talking to my pastoral friends at Presbytery. In fact, my widespread you know, experience with Presbyterians in various denominations leads me to believe that the problems they're having are the very same ones we're having. They struggle with the same kinds of lack of enthusiasm, the same kinds of lack of Christian love or fellowship, the same kinds of financial problems, lack of evangelism. We could go on and on. And I I say this in love to you as a congregation. I say it to me as, as one of your leaders. Shouldn't we be rebuked by that? Doctrinal strength, extraordinary doctrinal strength, and yet very ordinary, very ordinary congregational problems. Have we abandoned our first love? What can we do to improve our congregational life, to give it a holy zeal for God's glory and a burning concern for the souls of men?
How can our orthodoxy be given life and warmth and activity? How can we progress as a congregation into a more full-orbed expression of the body of Christ? Where can we improve and show the love for Christ, which first possessed us, and you know it did, you all feel guilty when I say these words. I feel guilty, smitten inside. Because I know when I first became a Christian, when I first joined the church, when I first became a minister, when I first became a teacher, at all these first points, I know the zeal and the enthusiasm and the ideals and the hopes and the hard work that was there. And I have to confess, just as you confess with me, so often it's not there now. What does Jesus say? He says, turn around, repent, do your first works. Start feeling and acting and seeing things like you did at first. Do those things that characterized you then. What can we as a congregation do to return to our first love? What do you think Christ would like to see happen here at Covenant Community Church in 1985? I've chosen four general areas for suggestions. You know, the minute you start this, uh, this job of... Uh, looking in detail at your individual life or congregational life, I suppose we could go on and on and on, and that's not my intention this morning. I do have four general areas that I'd like to suggest that we could all make improvement. Not any particular individual here in the church, but all of us pulling together to show that our first love, piety, and enthusiasm are still there. I want you to make four resolutions with me today. I want you in 1985 to resolve to worship God reverently. I want you in 1985 to resolve to love fervently. I want you in 1985 to resolve to learn constantly. And finally, in 1985, let us resolve to grow significantly. Four things to worship reverently to love fervently, to learn constantly, and to grow significantly. I'd like to see these things characterize us in this coming year. Let me look at each one of them and give a few specific guidelines and suggestions before we stop this morning. First of all, I want to suggest that in 1985, we might as a congregation learn to worship reverently. You know, it's very, very hard, um, very hard to put your mind where it belongs during worship. I don't know how to put this very gently, but um, so when you come to worship, you have been so conditioned by the entertainment focus and uh, orientation of our culture that you, that you expect that whoever's up here behind this wooden box, this desk for the Bible that's up here, to be really entertaining to keep your attention. And if, if he isn't, or if the special music isn't, or whatever's going on isn't, then we don't feel too terribly bad when our minds just kind of uh, think about what am I going to do this afternoon, or what problems am I going to have at work tomorrow, or... Uh, maybe even falling off a little bit of sleep because we haven't uh, adequately prepared for the Lord's Day. I say that to all of us, uh, to me as a preacher as well. When we come to the Lord's service, we need to keep our minds on Him. We need to worship Him in reverence. And not only do we have the general problem of wandering minds and sleepy bodies, but we have a, a room that is just not conducive to the kind of worship that we all want to experience. Um, God is good to us and in his providence has allowed us to have a place to worship with regularity. It's something we haven't enjoyed for a long time. In this last year or so, we've had this place and I'm grateful for it. But let's face it, having these hard floors without, uh, uh, without uh, carpeting and so forth makes everything we do echo, uh, makes it seem harsh, unwarm, cold. In fact, sometimes we come in here, it is literally cold in this room. Um, it's not conducive because sometimes we can hear the children in the nursery. Sometimes you hear your own children, and that's a, a tough situation. How do you keep your mind on worship when you know that your little one's crying? Um, we have a, a, a door here that's uh, not adequately at the back of the, uh, 
of the auditorium, and so any uh, uh, disturbance uh, coming or going is uh, going to affect the congregation. Okay, the circumstances aren't ideal, you get the point. But you see, we must still come with hearts wanting to worship God with reverence. The highest, the highest calling, most blessed privilege of being God's people is to stand before him unitedly and praise him, to sing to him, to listen to his word. You know, in heaven we're going to do a lot of that. We should be practicing. You might think about every hymn you sing from now on as being choir practice for that day when you're going to be in a choir in heaven. And you may say, well, I don't have a very good voice. It's hard for me to rejoice with joyful sound because nobody else is joyful when they hear me sing. It's pretty terrible. Don't you believe that? God loves to hear you sing. And, you know, I don't think we're going to have tryouts for choir in heaven. We're all going to be there. And we're all going to be expected to sing and to praise Him. And when we don't do so now, and we don't do so with enthusiasm, and when we don't do so thinking about the words that we're singing, we're not worshiping God reverently. We need to participate fully in the worship service as it's here. Now that means understanding the different parts of the service. Often we don't. Often we sit there and just say, well, okay, this thing's finished now, you know, check it off. Next thing's finished, check it off. Next thing's finished. You know, this isn't an agenda for a business meeting. This is something to help you be in the right frame of mind and to do the right things at the right times. We come in, we open our service with praise to God. We call you to worship. We sing the Gloria. How often when you sing the Gloria, do you think about those words that I am here and doing my very level best to raise my voice with cheerfulness and with holiness to praise God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to know the overwhelming, the overwhelming privilege of standing here and knowing that God is watching our service and God is present in our service and God is pleased to hear us sing His praise. We need to worship more reverently. If we worship more reverently, that means we need to stay in our seats more often. There's nobody in the world who doesn't understand somebody is ill or something comes up where you have to get up and down in the service. But it's often been, you know, remarked to me that our congregation has more occasions for that than any other that uh, the people who are visitors know. We have an awful lot of movement in our congregation, and because of the circumstances, it's not easy to hide it. Now, my recommendation is, when it's necessary, somebody's ill or whatever, of course you've got to do what you have to do, but apart from that, let's stay in our seats. You know, we're making an effort to tell our children, use the restroom before you go to church. Whatever it takes, let's remember when we come in here, we're coming for a worship experience. It's going to last a little while, and it's distracting to ourselves. I think that's the most destructive part of it. And it's also, unfortunately, distracting to others when we do a lot of moving around, up and down. And that raises another question. Do we come on time to church? And the Lord humbles people when they have to preach these things. I want you to know that. You see, today I was doing a terrible job of getting here on time myself. And, uh, and the Lord knew I had to say these things. It's hard, but you know, we all... Me too. We all need to think about this. If worship is to be done in reverence, and if it's important, we put the time aside. We get up a half hour earlier if we have to. We leave 15 minutes earlier if that's what it calls for. We do what it takes to come on time. Stop and think about it. How many hours are there in the week? I could probably have one of the children in the congregation compute it for me very quickly. Of all those hours in the week, we spend an hour and 15 minutes and I will, so that you don't have to say it afterwards, sometimes an hour and a half, because the sermon goes over, we spend maybe two hours and a half all together on Sunday morning, worshiping God in Sunday school and church. Of all the hours of the week, those are the most precious hours that God gives us as his people. And we shouldn't miss them for the world. And we should be here on time. And we should enthusiastically throw ourselves into whatever's happening here. And we need more consistent church attendance. I remember the first sermon that was preached by the pastor that in, during my high school years, I think, had the most formative influence on my life. Uh, 
very godly man. I, I still remember the first sermon he preached. He came to our congregation, you know, as an outsider, and he said, I'm going to preach this sermon the first time because I don't know any of you well enough that I can step on any toes. So what is the one thing you can do? What is the one thing that I can't get over? It's when you're not here at church. Not because the pastor wants an audience. By the way, I think a lot of people are very cruel and very low in their estimation when they think the preacher just wants a big congregation to preach to. No, preachers realize that the life of the church as a whole is affected when people aren't participating. And it discourages them. And I haven't mastered yet just the right way to say to you, you know, we missed you and you should have missed us. And I say that to all of you. We need to want to be here and to do so consistently, on time, to make it a priority. After all, worship's not optional. Worship's not some idea I came up with. It's not something like, let's try this for 1985. Let's worship God. No, it's been here ever since God called out a people. He called them to worship his name and to do so corporately and to do so regularly and to do so according to his will. And we're trying to do that here and we want you to do it with us. And so, during 1985, would you resolve with me, first of all, to worship God reverently, to be regular in your attendance, to be on time, to minimize our movement, to participate fully in the activities of the worship, to know what's going on, to be intelligent about it, to keep our minds on Jesus. Would you? I don't ask you to do that just because we'll have a more clean performance for others. I ask you to do that because I dare say at the end of 1985, if you do so, this is going to be a tremendous year for you. For you, if we all worship God reverently. Secondly, let's resolve to love fervently. Oh, I know we all can say we love. In fact, John puts it just that way in his first epistle. He says, let's not love in word only, but in deed as well. We all love one another in word. I don't think there's, the, and there's, there's not a doubt in my mind that if I were to go to you and say, do you love the congregation? Oh, yes, I love the congregation. Do you love the congregation fervently? If you do, I want to suggest here are some ways to improve your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ in this place. Make a commitment to overcome the geographical problem in our church. Now, friends, I wish there was some way that I could uh, find an easy solution to that. The session has thought about it. It's talked to many of you about it many times. And there isn't one. And for some reason, praise God, you continue to come. If you continue to come despite your distance, if you continue to find value in the worship experience of this congregation, despite the fact we're spread out all over Orange County, then let's make a further commitment, not just to be here on Sunday, but to be committed to one another as a congregation. Let's say we've got a unique situation. Let's thank God that in His providence He's drawn together people who care for the same things, who believe the same things, who love one another and want to be with one another, and then do something about it. If we believe this congregation has viability and value, then let's say, I'm not going to let geography get in the way. You know, if we lived 500 years ago, the geography of our congregation would be impossible. But in God's providence, he didn't bring Covenant Community Church into existence 500 years ago. He brought us into existence presently, in the 1980s, in the days of telephones and cars and computers and everything else that may be valuable in helping us stay in touch with one another. And so let's make a point of talking to everyone on Sunday and showing hospitality to everyone during the week. And it's hard. Um, I'm not going to for the sake of uh, not embarrassing anybody, but I do know and I want to commend there are some families in our church, you, I, you can see the cogs and the wheels turning, have made a point of scheduling everybody in the church to get into their house at some time during the year. That's a good idea for all of us. Make a point of sharing our homes with one another. That's going to call for scheduling. You know, it doesn't happen naturally, you know. We aren't the kind of congregation that has so much free time, we all sit around saying, hey, nobody's doing anything on Tuesday, let's get together. It doesn't happen that way. 
And our congregation gets to say, hey, what are you doing? Seven Tuesdays, you know, down the line. Would you put us on the calendar? And would you protect that spot on the calendar? Don't let anything but an emergency, you know, take that away. You know, that, it's that kind of commitment. It's a little thing, but if we really believe that we should love each other fervently, that's the kind of commitment we need to make. We need to attend our socials and our other functions. Now, a lot of good work goes into these functions, the socials included, and I feel badly when people don't fully participate. Uh, again, without mentioning names, we've had one person in the past complain, I don't feel close to anyone in this church, and so um, leaves the church, and yet that very same person hardly ever followed out ways of feeling close to people in the church. And, uh, yeah, I guess I'm being critical when I say that, but, I mean, we have no right to complain that we have the sense of distance if we haven't done everything to overcome that sense of distance first. And there's a lot we could be doing that we aren't. Here's an easy one. Intelligent prayer for one another during the week. How many of you, during the time of uh, prayer, praises, and requests, take notes? I don't watch because I'm not trying to give you brownie points here. But think about it. If every week you were to have a running list, what if you just brought a notebook to church that had prayer requests in it and praises and just wrote down what you heard? You know, there's always three, four, sometimes as many as a dozen before we begin church. And if every week you took those homes and you made it a point of praying about that, I dare say you'd feel a lot closer to the people in this church. Another thing is, don't let a week go by without seeing or talking to some others in the congregation. Now, sometimes we have Bible study. That's a great time to come out and see others in the congregation. Sometimes we have a social or an open forum or something like that. But now there are going to be weeks when you can't make it to those events or weeks when there aren't events. Why don't you make it a New Year's resolution to say, I'll never let a week go by when I don't call at least two other people in the congregation? And when they say, what'd you call about? You just say, because I wanted to talk to you. How are things going? Would you like to know what we're doing? Can I pray for you in a certain way? I mean, if we, the telephone's right there, and we complain about distance. There are things we could be doing. Let's remember that membership is not a reality only on Sundays in this church. You know, it's not like, well, now we're members on Sunday, but then we go our individual ways, and we're not members of one another in the body of Christ anymore. And the next Sunday we become members again. No, we're members day in and day out, and let's uh, start acting like we are. And that brings me to another thought. We need loyalty to this congregation. Loyalty to this congregation. I'm not ashamed to say just that. We need loyalty to this congregation because we're a group of God's people. And we need to weep when another person weeps, rejoice when another person rejoices, to hope for the good of this church, its growth, its stability. We need to be concerned when people are disciplined. We need to be enthusiastic about having new people come. We need to be loyal to this congregation. And that means to one another, not to the preacher. I'd be the last one to try to pretend that I don't appreciate the loyalty many of you show to me as an individual. The session would say that as well. Sure, we appreciate that. And I think it's good, but it's not what I'm talking about here. You see, loyalty to a preacher is death to a congregation. Spurgeon was a fantastic preacher. Spurgeon died, and so did his congregation. For you see, it was his congregation rather than Christ's congregation in that sense. You see, when I'm not here, or when the day comes that I pass away or move on, this congregation is still going to be the body of Christ here in Placentia with a beacon testimony to the nations and with works of love and kindness to be done and the poor to be taken care of and the lost to be evangelized. And so you need loyalty to one another here. When I'm not preaching, you need loyalty to one another here. Well, have I covered all those points? Don't you think that we can resolve to love one another more fervently this year? Um, other things might be said, but let me move on to the third thing. Let us resolve to learn constantly this year as well. To learn constantly. We have a congregation which is very doctrinally intelligent. And we have a congregation where I honestly have to pull teeth to get you to Bible study. Not all of you, and I'm not singling out any one of you either, 
But I must say, when I said earlier, we have extraordinary learning and very ordinary problems, I don't know a preacher who doesn't go through that. Doesn't say, why don't people put more value on the study of the Bible? Why don't they come out when we study the Bible? Either that or tell us, you know, you guys don't say anything worthwhile, or you need to study something else, or do it in this way. But we don't get any of them. We don't get suggestions for improvement or support. You see? And there's something wrong with that. I say that to your shame. You know that I love you, and I don't step on your toes just to step on your toes. But this morning I'm going to say, more of you need to go to Bible study. And you know why? Because you don't know as much as you think you know. And you need to improve in what you know and to find better ways to apply it. And you know what else? Even if you knew as much as you thought, and even if I knew as much as I thought, we need to get together and share it. We need one another. We need to be searching the scriptures together. We need to be helping one another. You know, because I have some real strong points theologically. I thank God for whatever is there. But you know, I have a lot of weak points too. And when I go to Bible study, and I, and I love this when this happens. I praise God. It's not an embarrassment. Sometimes somebody says something in a Bible study and I say, why didn't I see that? You know, I'm, I'm supposed to be the expert in these things. People say things, they have an insight, they have a background or a preparation that enables them to see things that I don't. And I see things you don't. And so even if we knew as much as we really thought we did, we still need to get together. Please resolve to come to Bible study. See the importance of it. I say this to your shame as well. You know, no one has commented. I won't say nobody's observed, but no one has commented upon the fact that over the last couple months we have not had a sermon in review in the communique. What does that tell me? It tells me that there's no need for a sermon in review in the communique. Sermon in review is a minor point. Most congregations don't have anything like that. But what it points to is a major point. What it points to is that maybe we aren't meditating upon what we hear. Maybe we aren't thinking about these things. Maybe we don't want to be stimulated to find out, did we hear? Do we have this right? Should we fill out our outlines? No one's requested that the sermon and review continue. Well, we need to learn constantly, together, consistently throughout this year. You know, those who take their strong points for granted usually lose their strong points. I played tennis when I was in high school with some small measure of success. And um, I knew that I had a very strong um, forearm, and so I needed to work on my backhand. And so I'd go to practice and I'd work on my backhand and work on my backhand and work on my backhand. Then Friday, the tennis tournament would come up, and I'd go and, boy, did I have a striking backhand. But for some reason, I was still struggling a bit with my forehand now. If you take your strong points for granted, you lose them. We're very strong in doctrinal knowledge. And if we take that for granted and say, well, we don't need to study more, I assure you the day will come when a preacher will stand here and not commend you for your doctrinal strength, but will have to chide you because you've lost it. Fourthly, getting to the end of these things, let's resolve to grow significantly this year. Now, one of the major points, I think, in doing that is that we need to see that we have something worth giving up conveniences for and luxuries for in this congregation. This congregation has something that's worth giving up stained glass windows and worth giving up thousands of people in the congregation and worth giving up only having to go three blocks down the street to church. The congregation has something to be proud of. Not sinfully proud, not, you know, wear you know, like a button and say, boy, aren't we good. But we should be happy and proud of what Christ has done by his grace with people like us here. We do have a church that has a lot of commendable points. And I'm proud to share it with others. I'm glad when people come. And if you feel that way, then you'll want them to do so. It'll be an easy thing for you to do. You need to cultivate that attitude, not only of loyalty to the congregation, but being proud of your church. And we need to grow significantly. You know, this congregation believes we should help the poor, but you know why the congregation, we do, by the way, more than most of you realize, help people in need. But you know why we can't do more? 
why we can't systematically do something? That's because we still struggle with the budget to take care of rent and salaries and supplies. And you say, but I'm giving as much as I can, preacher. Maybe you are. My point is not let's give more this year. My point is this, that if we want to do more program-wise, we need to have more families here, more contributors. If we want to be more evangelistic, we want to have a stronger voice when we protest against abortion. If we want to get things done, we need more people. Now, this is the hard quiz. How are we going to get more people in this church? Have Dr. Bonson invite more people. Have the session invite more people. Do more advertising. Pray that God will bring strangers to us. None of the above. I suppose that in God's sovereign power, he could use those. But the answer for consistent, steady, dependable growth is right out there sitting down right now with each and every one of you. You know how we're going to grow? We're going to grow by you telling your next-door neighbor, you know, I drive 190 miles to church. I'm exaggerating. But I think it's worth it. Won't you come with me? Yeah, that's right. We go two cities over. Yeah, it's 9.30 in the morning. But you know, it's the greatest privilege in the world to stand before God and worship his name and to hear his word preached and to have people who love you. I wouldn't miss it for the world. You need that attitude. You need to do something about it. So I'm going to give you something you can do about it. Here's our resolution for 1985. Every family, every family in the congregation will be looked upon, hopefully, as expected to bring one more family by next New Year's. Now, I don't mean bring one more family to visit. I mean disciple one more family. Disciple? I mean, wait a minute, that's the preacher's job, right? Wrong. That's not the preacher's job, that's all of our jobs. I'm just the quarterback here. I'm here to do some troubleshooting when you have difficulty and to encourage you and all that. But you're to disciple people. Jesus said, disciple the nations. And I want you to disciple one family in this So the Bonsons are going to make an effort to disciple one family and bring them to church. That means if they need to be converted, work on their conversion. Evangelize them. If they need to be shown the importance of the Reformed faith, talk to them about that. Answer their problems. Encourage them to come. Help them to find a way to get up early and get here on Sunday. Tell them eventually of the importance of church membership. Disciple them. Stay with them. Don't expect that what we do is we bring contacts in the door and then the session just leaps on that just like some kind of trained shoe salesman and tries to follow it up to the conclusion of the sale. You do this. You invite somebody you know, some relative, some friend, some co-worker, some neighbor. Every family bring a family and every individual bring an individual. Now, by individual, I mean those of you who are outside of families. Okay? And then something amazing is going to happen. If by 1986, New Year's 1986, you've all done this, I'm going to preach the sermon one more time. And then in 1986, every family is going to bring another family and every individual unmarried person is going to bring another individual unmarried person. And you know the size of this church is going to be such that we're going to have to start branching off. We're going to have to start opening, you know, um, some kind of uh, work over in this area, in that area. And when we start doing that sort of thing, and when God blesses us in that way and gives us that kind of influence, well, I'll tell you, it's going to be super. And we're going to praise Him because then that truth which we should pride ourselves in and which is so valuable for the lives of individuals and the nations, that truth that we have is going to start getting out. The shame of it is that it's so encapsulated right here in these six or seven rows every Sunday morning. In 1985, will you resolve to grow significantly? You, not the next family over or the session, but you, will you help us grow significantly? Those are only four areas. We could talk about much more. What are they again? Let's resolve to worship God fervently, reverently, I'm sorry. Let's resolve to love one another fervently, 